been all about one big idea. Love your neighbor as yourself. And it's a big idea because it shows up over and over and over again in the Bible. I'm not going to rehearse all the different places where it shows up, but I do think it's important for us to remind ourselves of some of the, the, the big takeaways that we've unpacked together. First of all, loving our neighbors starts right here with us loving each other well. We talked about the need to to strengthen our own relationships and just add one, just add one to the things that we're already doing. We talked about the need to give grace to each other and to others. We talked about the the critical role that this church can play in our valley, carrying the the message of the gospel, the ultimate example of loving others that, uh, that our valley needs so desperately. We talked about the urgency we have for that. Let's not lose sight of our need to, to wake up from our slumber, as Paul tells us. The hour is now. Last week, we heard from Jaish about our need to extend grace and forgiveness to others. That's a critical part of loving other people. And each of these messages, each of these appearances of this idea, love your neighbor as yourself in the scriptures, they're all like like ripples in a pond, starting here in our own faith family and moving out to those closest to us and then on and on and on to our whole valley until everyone can experience the transforming love of God through Christ. And as we wrap up our series today, I want to just quickly point us to what's coming next. This summer, I'm excited we're going to spend some time looking at the parables of Jesus. And uh, Jesus spends a lot of time sharing stories, parables. He teaches using parables quite a bit. And so we're going to spend our summer exploring those parables. We're going to find ourselves in the parables of Jesus. And today is is a bit of a bridge to that because we're going to explore a parable that happens to be a passage about loving our neighbor as ourselves. So it's a nice transition into the summer for us. And this is a a well-known story. It's a well-known parable, and it doesn't need me to set it up very much. It's just, it's the story of the Good Samaritan. So, you know, this is the first time you've ever wandered into a church. You heard this story. You know at least a little bit about it. So I'm just going to step out of the way. I'm going to let Jesus do the talking. And so open your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 10. Luke 10, we're going to pick up in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, and so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So, so this is a well-known story to most of us, but, but one part that's maybe a little less well-known is this introduction, which we just read. The, the reason that Jesus tells this story of the Good Samaritan in the first place. So I want us to, to look at the introduction for just a bit before we get into the story. And notice it just starts with a question. This, this so-called expert in the law decides to test Jesus. Not a good idea, by the way. And, and he asked Jesus what seems like kind of a straightforward question. He, he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So he asked the question basically, how do I demonstrate my righteousness? How do I live out my faith? What do I need to do? Another way to think of it is, how do I let the love of God ripple out from my life to other people? 
or the way we said it throughout this series, is how do I, as a transformed person, go about transforming this valley? That's basically what he's getting at. We have this faith where we're messy people who've been transformed, but what do we do with this? How do we demonstrate it? How do we transform others? And so Jesus points him to the law. Remember, the, the, the law was designed to show us what God is like, to show us the heart of God, what he values the most. So the idea is that if our lives are aligned with his priorities, we're going to be doing the same kind of transformational work that God does in us. And so Jesus asks him, what does the law say? What's the most important to God, in other words? And this guy, he's obviously grown up with Awana. He's got the answer right there. And so he tells Jesus. He tells Jesus exactly what's at the heart of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. There's that big idea, this verse we've been exploring. Only this time Jesus doesn't say it. This, this expert in the law says it. But notice the way that Jesus responds. He says, do this and you will live. I just want us to stop right there for a moment. Don't miss that. Do this and you will live. That's a promise from Jesus. A promise that he wants to fulfill in your life and in my life. Loving God and loving others is the path to life. This, this guy, this expert, he thought he understood the path to life. He thought, man, if I just grow myself, if I just focus on being a good follower of God, that's how I'm going to get it done. But Jesus says the path to real life is loving God and loving other people. That love has to ripple out from us. Do this and you will live. Jesus is telling you and me and him how to find real Life. Love your neighbor as yourself. Living a life that's others-focused is, is the best way that you can live. The best life that Jesus has to offer you and me is for us to be transformed people who transform the valley. Loving your neighbor as yourself. And yet hearing that, hearing this idea of transforming the valley, that's pretty daunting. I mean, where do we even start Because we're messy people, our valley is full of messy people. So where do we start? Do we try to tackle this problem first or that problem first? Or do we start this program or pursue this strategy? Where do we go, you know? Prayer, that's always a good place to start. We should start with prayer maybe, but, but it's such a daunting task. So many things, so many ideas to think about. We tend to get a little paralyzed at this point. We, we're just like this expert of the law. We know what to do. We know the answer, but how do we do it? How do we actively show God to others? How do we let the ripples go out from our life? How do we do this and find life? And the answer to that is where this story, this well-known story comes into play. This expert asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? In other words, Break this down for me, Jesus. Help me know where to start. We're we're motivated. We know what we want to do. But how do we love our neighbor? How do we start transforming the valley? Jesus tells us. Verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. 
So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So don't miss that concluding question that Jesus has. After he tells the story, he asks, which of these three do you think was a neighbor? In other words, which one gets it right? And the man responds, the one who had mercy on him. Mercy. Such a a simple solution. Such a a critical thing that's far too often missing in our lives. But Jesus tells us that mercy is the key. That's how we start. Mercy is how we demonstrate our own righteousness, how we live out our faith, how we do this and live. Mercy is what's going to ripple out from this faith family to all of the valley. It all comes down to mercy. We start by simply showing mercy. I mean, we read this parable. We've all heard this before, but we read this parable. We think about all the things the Samaritan did for this guy who needed help. I mean, he got him some first aid. He gave up his own donkey. You've never done that before, you know. He took him to the inn. He paid his expenses, all the sacrifice, and that's great. But really, he would have been the hero of the story without any of all that stuff because the bar for success was pretty low. I mean, the first two guys, they just walked away on the other side of the street. They did absolutely nothing. Didn't even stop to pray or whatever, just kept on moving. So I think the lesson of the story is not so much the extent of the sacrifice that this good Samaritan made, but just the fact that he did something. He just showed mercy. The hero of the story is the guy who showed up and did something. And the way we're going to transform this valley is the same way. Just do something. Show mercy. And Jesus, he's teaching this idea in a parable. We're going to talk more about this in the summer, but parable is just a story that Jesus uses to teach a lesson. And Jesus set these parables in his own cultural context. I mean, he's got stories about farmers and weddings, all kinds of things that were just common to his time and culture. In fact, uh, even in this story, Jesus uses this well-known road from Jerusalem to Jericho, known for being a dangerous road. This kind of situation happened all the time, people being mugged and beaten on the road. And, and I mention this because this week, I came across a picture that is is the perfect modern version of this story, an image that's the exact parable, but in our modern culture and context. Maybe you have heard of the popular Instagram account called Preachers and Sneakers. It's a very simple account, but it's become very, very popular on Instagram. What they do is they take a picture of a a pastor, like a celebrity pastor, wearing expensive shoes. And then they, they post the picture along with what the shoes are going for on the open market. So, for example, here's a post from a couple of weeks ago. So there's the pastor, and he's got the shoes on, and you can see the shoes are pretty spendy. I don't know if you can read that price tag, but uh, here's another example. Uh, Back one. There we go. Yeah. So here's the pastor, and he's got on even more expensive shoes. You get the idea, right? Preachers and sneakers, right? 
But this week, there was a post that really caught my attention. I could see everybody kind of starting to register the cost of shoes there. But uh, this week, this post really, really caught my attention. Take a look at this next pick. Here's a, a pastor, celebrity pastor, wearing some expensive sneakers. But what's so stunning about this picture is not so much the price tag of the shoes, but what's in the background. Let's zoom in on the background. I don't know if you can tell, but there's a man in the background who appears to be a homeless person. And this pastor appears to be completely oblivious. And just in case you can't quite see from that distance, the apparently homeless person doesn't seem to have any shoes on at all. So this is like the good Samaritan in real life. This guy was too busy or too oblivious to notice the man in need right behind him. Right? And I see you looking at my shoes, but here's the thing. It's, <laughs> it's not about shoes. It's about the heart. It's about his heart and my heart and your heart. Because we're all guilty of being focused on the wrong stuff, being focused on ourselves, uh, wasting the things that God has given us and missing what God has put right in front of our path, right? We're all super messy people in need of our own mercy. A couple weeks ago, uh, some of our staff went to a conference so we're out of town, and i got to brag on one of your pastors for a moment, not because of his fancy footwear, but, uh, but Pastor Thad, he really modeled the idea of showing mercy. We were out of town, and so we had a rental car, and uh, we we're, were stopping to fill it up with gas on our way uh, back to the airport. And, uh, and just as he gets out of the car to gas it up, this woman next to us gets his attention. And her name is Samaria. I'm not making that up. It's like the perfect thing for a, a sermon on the Good Samaritan. You can't make that stuff up. So, uh, so Samaria, that's her name. And she's just honest with that. She said, hey, I need some gas, and I don't have any money. So Thad showed mercy. Without a second thought, just said, yeah, pull on in, and, and I'll help you out here, right? And I know, I know, we've all read when helping hurts. We know that sometimes enabling people is worse than really helping them. And like how long had she been waiting there for some kind sucker to pull in and buy her gas? You know, whatever, right? Just show mercy. And let God sort out whatever else might be going on. It's such a simple thing for that. It's such a big thing for Samaria. On the same trip, we're walking around Atlanta and we're outside of Ebenezer Baptist Church. So we work at a Baptist church, and we go visit a Baptist church when we're out of town. But, uh, but this is not just any old Baptist church. It's the church where Martin Luther King was the pastor. And talk about a transformed guy who transformed the world, right? And so, so we're walking down the street right in front of this church, and we're approached by a homeless man. And right away he says, hey, I'm not asking you for money, which is like the ultimate homeless person red flag, right? Like, okay, what's the con here? What's the game? Where's my wallet? You know, like, just... That's you. But listen, that's not my problem. That's not your problem. Just show mercy. So without a second thought, Nate, our intern, said, yeah, hey, I got you. Let's walk over here and I'll buy you something to eat. And they ended up having a great conversation. Nate just showed mercy. I mean, if you can't show mercy right outside the door of a Baptist church, then what are we doing with ourselves? You know what I mean? Like, let's not lose sight of what's just so simple and so important, just showing mercy. Martin Luther King Jr. himself taught that life's most persistent and urgent question is what are you doing for others? And Jesus would say, show mercy. We've said in this series already that love is actively showing God to other people. 
The way we treat others is ultimately how we demonstrate our own faith in Christ. That's how it ripples out from here to transform the valley. And really, that's what Jesus is telling us here. Transform people really can transform the valley, and we do it one person at a time, one act of mercy at a time, like ripples in a pond. And that's what I want us to really drill down on today. I want each of us to make it personal. I want to give us a way that we can all personalize this call from Jesus to love our neighbor, to do this and live, to transform the valley just one person at a time. And the way we're going to do it is bread, not Actual bread, although that might be one thing we use. We've talked before about sharing a meal with other people, but but bread is an acronym. It's a series of practices and ideas that give us what we need to be able to show mercy, to be transformed people who transform our valley. So let's unpack bread together. And I should tell you, these are not my ideas, but I think they're very, very helpful for us because they help us break down this call to love our neighbor into to actionable things that we can do, practical things we can do, transforming the valley one person at a time. So the B comes first, and it stands for this first practice, which is begin with hospitality. And in ancient culture, in biblical culture, hospitality was a big deal. Showing care and concern for guests, it was, it was for strangers, was a big deal. A whole formal set of practices. And the word hospitality for all cultural kind of uh, it, it draws to mind this idea of you know a, a super fancy, perfectly decorated dinner party. But but it used to just mean embracing a stranger like family. Even when it's inconvenient, even when the house is dirty, just embracing a stranger like family. So like if your sibling or your child ran out of gas, you'd buy them a tank of gas, right? So let's treat strangers like family. Begin with hospitality. And Jesus models over and over again, even in this parable, the the practices of showing hospitality to strangers, of healing the sick, and caring for the marginalized. It's not special work. It's not limited to people who just have a a certain spiritual gift. It's it's part of the basic package when you sign up for Jesus. When, When you signed up, when Jesus transformed you, you signed up to go and transform other people. It's just what we do. And we begin with hospitality. That's the beginning, turning strangers into family. Begin with seeing everybody like family. Hospitality is the key, not always in big ways, but in little ways too. In one of the other places where Jesus mentions this idea of loving your neighbor in the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. In other words, because that's how God acts. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. We show hospitality to everyone. We show mercy to everyone. We treat strangers like family because that's what Jesus did for us. So we begin with hospitality. That's the B. The next part is the R. And if we're going to transform the valley, we're not going to do it alone. The R stands for recruit mentors. 
We need relationships that are going to support us in this. When, when Nate, our intern, walked off with this homeless person to buy him lunch, we didn't ignore him. We didn't uh, leave him alone. We watched him. We checked on him. We prayed for him. We supported him. And we all need a support network. We need mentors in this transformational work. Mentors provide a, a relational support structure. Because showing mercy, is a, it's a countercultural practice. So it's essential to build a community of people around us who, who share that value, who reflect the kind of things that we want to really embody. So you don't have to do this alone. And the idea of mentors is so helpful. In fact, uh, next week is our women's conference. It's not too late to sign up for that, ladies. Uh, but the big theme of the conference, one of the themes is mutual mentoring. And it's kind of born out of the same vision, this reality that we all need a team. We all need relationships that are going to support us because this is hard work. If we're going to transform the valley, we're not going to do it alone. We've got to recruit others to help us in it. So bread, the next is the E. It stands for embrace tension. And I'm talking about the tension between hospitality and boundaries. I mean, we can't be foolish. We've got to realize it's a dangerous world. We've got to realize we can't possibly meet all the needs of a person because ultimately only Jesus can meet the needs of a person. So it's easy to get in deep with folks. We start practicing hospitality, start living that out. You're going to encounter people with real needs, just bottomless pit of needs, right? And that creates a tension, a tension between setting up some healthy boundaries and showing plenty of mercy. But here's the thing. I think we go way too far on the boundaries side. We're we're all like that pastor sitting on a bench completely ignoring the world around us. As Christians, I think we talk about boundaries way more than anybody else in the world. I mean, we kind of capitalized on this idea. Oh, I'm sorry, I can't serve right now. I've got to spend time growing myself. Or, oh, uh, I'd love to help you with that, but I've got to spend time on my own relationship with Jesus right now. Well, if you want to have a relationship with Jesus, you're probably going to find him out there transforming the valley. Go, go look for him, you know what I mean? But uh, that's what he does over and over again. So the E does not mean embrace boundaries. It's about tension. Embrace tension. There's a tension between being smart, recognizing your limits, and then pushing yourself past your limits, pouring yourself out the way that Jesus does. But you've got to embrace that tension because the tension is what produces growth. There's no growth in your life without some tension. So let's not be afraid to to push the boundaries a little bit, to see how much God might want to use you to transform the valley. Because in that, we're going to grow. We're going to encounter Jesus doing more through us than we can imagine. Embrace that tension. The A stands for another key idea, allow margin. This is a critical idea for our culture. We're all so busy all the time, too busy. We lack margin. And that's terrible because margin is a critical piece to showing mercy. There's no mercy without relationship, at least a little bit of relationship, and there's no relationship without some margin. Margin's critical. We've got to find the time to do the things that God wants us to do to make his priorities our priorities. I mean, surely this Samaritan walking down the road had places to be, But he had enough margin in his life to be able to stop, to show mercy, and then to go the extra mile even. Richard Swenson wrote a book called Margin. In the book, he defines margin as the space between ourselves and our limits. Well, 
We're all pushing ourselves to the limit. There's no leftover space, right? In the same book, he talks about margin as something held in reserve for contingencies or unanticipated situations. Well, we can't expect to respond to God's interruptions if we don't have anything in reserve. Every moment is filled with our own agenda, but margin is critical. Tied closely to the idea of margin is the next letter, the final letter in bread, the D. It stands for discern kairos. I'm throwing a little Greek at you. But kairos, it's a good Greek word for all of us to learn. It's, it's one of the Greek words for time. Uh, the Greeks, they were really smart people, and they had two words for the concept of time. And the, the first word is, is, is chronos, like you think about chronological time, and that's how we tend to think of time. Days and weeks and hours and minutes, that kind of a thing. But this other word, kairos, it, it, it means what we might call appointed time or, or moments. Kairos is, is those moments when you're a person who has some resources and you just happen to meet a person who needs a tank of gas. Or kairos is the moment when you're on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho and you just happen to meet a person who really needs some help, Right? Kairos are those moments when God is at work. He's putting you and me in situations where he wants to use us. So we've got to be aware of those moments. We've got to discern those times when God really wants us to step up and show mercy. But the thing about Kairos moments is they're not always at convenient times, especially for people who have no margin. Kairos comes at an inconvenient time all the time. We're always on the road somewhere and we're usually running late. We always got somewhere else to be, something to do, some pressing thing that needs our attention, or we're so distracted by our shiny objects that we don't even pay attention to what's going on. A big part of discerning kairos means we have to understand inconvenience, meaning we've got to learn to recognize when something that seems inconvenient is really a divine appointment, a kairos moment that God wants us to enter into. I want to share a story with you. It's another story. It's very similar to the story of the Good Samaritan, but again, in real life. And this comes from the Washington Post, of all places. And a woman in Colorado named Deborah Green wrote this letter to the Post. And it's such a powerful example of some Jesus followers who responded to a Kairos moment. The letter's title tells us the story. The title is an open letter to the Whole Foods shoppers who consoled me when I learned of my dad's suicide. Listen to what she says. Dear strangers, I remember you. Ten months ago, when my cell phone rang with the news of my father's suicide, you were walking into Whole Foods prepared to do your grocery shopping, just as I had been only minutes before you. But I had already abandoned my cart full of groceries, and I stood in the entryway of the store. My brother was on the other end of the line. He was telling me my father was dead, that he had taken his own life early that morning. And through his own sobs, I remember my brother kept saying, I'm sorry, Deborah, I'm so sorry. I can't imagine how it must have felt for him to make that call. After I hung up, I started to cry and scream. My whole body trembled. This couldn't be true. Only moments before I'd been going about my errands on a normal Monday. Only moments before my life had felt intact. Overwhelmed, I fell to the floor, my knees buckling under the weight of what I had just learned. And you, kind strangers, you were there. 
You encountered me, a stranger, in the worst moment of my life, and you coalesced around me with a common purpose to help. You could have kept on walking, ignoring my cries, but you didn't. You could have simply stopped and stared at my primal display of pain, but you didn't. No. Instead, you surrounded me as I yelled through my sobs. My father killed himself. He killed himself. He's dead. And the question that has plagued me since that moment came to my lips. Why? I must have asked it over and over and over again. I remember in that haze of emotions, one of you asked for my phone and who you should call. What was my password? You needed my husband's name as you searched through my contacts. I remember that I could hear your words as you tried to reach my husband for me, leaving an urgent message for him to call me. I recall hearing you discuss amongst yourselves who would drive me home in my car and who would follow that person to bring him back to the store. You didn't even know one another, but it didn't seem to matter. You encountered me, a stranger, in the worst moment of my life, and you coalesced around me with a common purpose, to help, just showing mercy. I remember one of you asking if you could pray for me and for my father. I must have said yes, and I recall now that Christian prayer being offered for my Jewish father and me, and it still brings tears to my eyes and makes me smile. In my fog, I told you that I had a friend, Pam, who worked at Whole Foods, and one of you went and searched for her, and thankfully she was there that morning, and you brought her to me. I remember the relief I felt at seeing her face, familiar and warm. She took me to the back, comforting and caring for me until my husband could get to me. And I even recall, as I sat with her, one of you sent back a gift card to Whole Foods, though you didn't know me. You wanted to offer a little something to let me know that you would be thinking of me and holding me and my family in your thoughts and prayers. That gift card helped to feed my family when the idea of cooking was far beyond my emotional reach. I never saw you after that, but I know this to be true. If it were not for all of you, I might have simply gotten in the car, tried to drive myself home. I wasn't thinking straight if I was thinking at all. If it were not for you... I don't know what I would have done in those first raw moments of overwhelming shock, anguish, and grief. But I thank God every day that I didn't have to find out. Your kindness, your compassion, your willingness to help a stranger in need has stayed with me until this day. And no matter how many times my mind takes me back to that horrible, life-altering moment, it's not all darkness. Because you reached out to help. You offered a ray of light and the bleakest moment I've ever endured. You may not remember it, you may not remember me, but I will never, ever forget you. And though you may never know it, I give thanks for your presence and humanity each and every day. These people found themselves in a kairos moment. They certainly had things to do and places to go. They were probably shopping so they could go home and make dinner, but they were willing to stop and show mercy, to embrace a stranger like family. And they transformed this woman's life. She'll never forget what Christianity can look like. She says, no matter how many times my mind takes me back to that horrible, life-altering moment, it's not all darkness. They offered a ray of light. They redeemed that moment for her simply by showing mercy, by loving their neighbor. So what about us? 
What does bread look like for you and me? I want us to take these five ideas and I want us to make a very real for us. I want to leave us with a, a practice, an exercise that will help us make this kind of life our reality. You've got your, your sermon notes there. Hopefully you're able to capture these phrases, these bread ideas, and, and here's what you're going to do with them. You're going to make them personal. I mean, these ideas are only going to be helpful if we can really put them into practice to transform this valley one person at a time. And so the way to make them personal is this. You take these, these phrases, these ideas, and you write them at the top of a piece of paper. So, so one, one per page, five sheets of paper, okay? And you use the rest of that paper, the blank space, to make it personal for yourself. Write down as many words, phrases, ideas, examples of these things that you can think of. Things that support these five bread ideas. So for example, with the B, maybe you decide that inviting folks to dinner is one way you can put that into practice. So you write that down. But get specific. Maybe you decide, okay, every Friday we're going to have somebody over for dinner, right? That's one example. Here's another example. We've got a growth group that serves dinner at the Christian Aid Center once a month. That's a great way to put it into practice. Steal that idea. Write it down. That's worth duplicating. You know? They begin with hospitality, and they're doing it with a team. It's great. You know? So uh, maybe you're a student. Let me talk to students for a moment. Maybe you can't invite people over to dinner, but you can sit with somebody at the cafeteria or the lunchroom, whatever the kids are calling it these days. You know? That's transformative. Nobody wants to sit and eat lunch alone. Even adults don't like to do that. So, so you can do that. So you get the idea, right? For each of these things, you just write down some, some brainstorm, some ideas how it's going to look in your life, and you push yourself a little bit. Give yourself time to really think about this. I'll tell you, for me, personally, the one I know I'm going to have to spend a lot of time thinking about is the A, allow margin. There's not nearly enough margin in my life right now. It's hard for me to respond to Kairos moments because I don't have any of that time that's held in reserve. So I know I'm going to have to do some good hard thinking about that. Like even taking time to do this exercise is going to be a challenge, right? So I know some of the work I've got to do already. But, but give yourself time to make these five bread ideas a reality in your life. Figure out what it looks like for you. And take your time. And then there's one more step. You're going to make your five lists, and then you're going to look at these lists, and you're going to start to color code them. Here's how you do it. It's, it's right there in your sermon notes. Some of these things you're going to look at, and you're going to be able to do right away, or maybe you're already doing them. So, I mean, give yourself credit for things you're already doing, right? And you're going to color code these things. So the things that you're already doing or things that you can start pretty much right away, you're going to put a green dot next to those, green. That's something you can, you can do right away or, or you know, in the next one or two weeks, right? And then you look through your lists again, and you find those things that can be done pretty soon, but they're going to need a little bit of planning, and you mark those things in yellow. So yellow, that's something that can be done in the next one to three months with a little bit of planning, a little bit of resources, that kind of thing. You know, maybe you need to wait for your summer schedule to kick in, or maybe you need to wait for the end of summer because you already got a bunch of plans for the summer, okay? So mark those things in yellow. And then finally, there's going to be some things that you're going to need to mark in red. These are the ideas that are going to take some extended planning, some careful thought, some, some resources that you're going to have to set aside. And uh, don't scratch those things off. You know, God gave you the ideas. They're good ideas. Just figure out, okay, that's a good idea. It's going to take some work. And, uh, and so you mark it in red. So that's it. You've got your five lists, green, yellow, red. And then you get to work. You hit those green things right away. And you start to make plans for the other things. And get excited. Share your ideas with other people. Start to recruit those mentors and share them with me. Let's celebrate all the ways we can transform this valley together, just one person at a time. 
I had a meeting with uh, Russ Davis a couple of weeks ago, which, happy birthday, by the way. And uh, he shared a great idea with me, an idea that I would say is a yellow. I mean, he's put some good thought into it. He's already made some plans for it. It's an idea that I think has got some real transformative power. I'm not going to steal your thunder, but ask him about it, you know. And, uh, and so I just say that to say we can share these ideas, celebrate with others. He's already recruiting some, some folks on that, right? So loving your neighbor as yourself, it means showing mercy one person at a time. That's how transformed people Transform the valley. And throughout this series, we've talked about a lot of key ideas. We've got all the messiness we need right here in this room. We're messy, so we've got to start by loving each other well. And it starts right here so that what happens in here can show up out there, rippling out like, like water in a pond. And we talked about just giving generously of ourselves, trusting Christ because our own hearts are deceitful. We talked about putting on Christ the way that Paul talks about, carrying the transformative power of the gospel to all the people of our valley because they're all just like us, messy people like us who need grace. That's the one thing we've cornered the market on, grace. So we talked about extending grace and doing it with urgency because the hour is now. And we make it personal. We take it to the personal level, transforming the valley one person at a time. At the end of this parable, Jesus asked, which of these three do you think was a neighbor? And the man replies, the one who had mercy on him. And then Jesus gets the last word. He says, go and do likewise. Let's pray. God, we want to do this and live. We want to be people who are modeling our whole lives after you. And we know that starts right in our heart, in the place that you have already been at work. You've taken the mess that we are and you've transformed it through your death and your resurrection, paying the punishment that our sins deserve, Lord. And we want to be people who do that same transformative work for everybody we come in contact with, Lord. Help us to discern those moments when you're at work and you want us to show mercy. Help us to have the margin that we need in our lives to be about your business. Help us to put these practices into reality so that this valley is a transformed place in the same way that you've transformed us, Lord. We have grace. We have the key to real life. And we don't want to hold on to it. We want to give it away. We want to push ourselves to see how far we can go in loving other people well. We know that that means your spirit has to be at work in us. And so that's what we ask for. That's what we pray for, Lord. And we pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.